Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called God Is. In this series, we're learning who God is and how he wants to relate to us. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Cherry Hills. My name's Luke. I'm the high school ministry leader here. And uh, as Brian said earlier, it's coming up on a year for me of being here. And I can tell you that one of the things I've loved about being a part of Cherry Hills family this past year is that we have a truly multi-generational, intergenerational church and culture. That days like this happen and they're so cool and we get to worship and be led and edified together by the younger, younger people in our church. So I'm excited about that today and um, all that we're going to get to do in hearing uh, students sing and lead us and students serve and pass bulletins and greet and all that. It's an awesome time to get to be with you in that way. As I'm coming up on this one year mark though, I'm mindful of and I'm reflecting on where I was at about this time last year. See, last year about this time, I was in a place uh, much different than I am now, a place of great uncertainty, a place of facing the unknown, not knowing what God's doing or what's next in my life. See, about this time next year, my wife and I, we were uh, not yet married, and we were in the, the middle of wedding planning season, which was crazy and all kinds of stuff going on there, but we were also uh, both unemployed, fresh out of school, looking for jobs, any kind of work, trying to figure out what God was going to do and where he was going to plant us. And so I've been looking at uh, churches all over the place and, and trying to find something in youth ministry that was going to be a good fit for my wife and I. And so we were thinking through all this. And about two weeks away from our wedding date, we still both have no idea uh, what's going to happen next and where God's going to end up bringing us. And so we're, we're starting to be mindful of, you know, that, that vow that for richer or for poor, right, that that might be tested <laughs> sooner rather than later in our marriage. And so we're, we're very mindful of the future and the unknown. And about two weeks away from our wedding, I get a call from uh, Pastor Steve. And Steve says, hey, Luke, we'd love for you to come to Springfield. We were, we were in Michigan at this time, so we'd love for you to come to Springfield, do one more interview with us. I said, okay, that'd be great. I'd love to do that. When? So Steve gives me a date, and he says, it's going to be like next weekend. I was like, oh, okay, next weekend. So let me check my calendar, and I go, and I look, and I actually had uh, an interview at a church out in New Jersey on the East Coast lined up for that weekend. And I, I talked to Steve, and I said, hey, I don't know, I've got this other interview lined up with this other church. And Steve, with um, the, like incredible measure of tact here, basically said, would you consider uh, coming to Cherry Hills and doing an interview here instead of that? I said, well, let me think about that. So I said, give me 30 minutes. I got to talk to my wife. So my wife and I, we go and we're sitting, we're sitting on the porch at her parents' house and we're looking out at Lake Michigan and the stars are out and it's nighttime and we're watching, you know, these darkened waves roll in and we're looking up at the sky and we're, we're praying together and we're thinking out loud and we're saying, okay, What's God doing? How's he moving in us right now? Where is he calling us to be at? And so we're praying for discernment and we're praying for wisdom. But more than anything else, there's something I can remember praying with Mara. We're praying, Lord, help us trust you. Give us eyes to see where you're at work and what you're doing. And give us the courage to step into that with you. Lord, help us trust you as the God who's orchestrating a story and who's designing our lives. And let us know what you're doing so we can join you in that. And some of you maybe this morning are in a place somewhat similar to that where you've had moments day to day, you're in a season of life where you're, you're trying to know what it means to trust God in uncertainty, to trust God when you face opposition or unknown. 
You know, a few weeks ago, we were at Fuge, and I was having a conversation with uh, Sydney Deweese, who we got to hear pray over us earlier in the service, and she said something that's been rolling around in my mind since then. She said, Luke, I'm glad that we're studying the names of God this summer, because I really want to know what it means to know God by name. And that's so profound. I mean, that's stuck with me since then. That's exactly what we're doing this summer. We're trying to know God by name, to understand who he is, how he wants to relate to us. And so we're going to do that this morning again. We're going to look at a name of God that I think God has given to us, revealed to us, as a name that we lean into and call out to when we're trying to trust him. So open up a Bible to Genesis chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a seat near you. We'll be in Genesis 17, and it's on page 12 in those black Bibles. So as you're turning there, I want to catch you up to speed a little bit on what God's been doing in the story and in the life of a man named Abram. Because Abram is at the, the centerpiece of the story that we're going to look at. So in Genesis chapter 12, the author of Genesis moves away from telling about the, the prehistory stuff, and he starts to focus the whole rest of the book of Genesis on this one figure in his family and the promise that God makes to him. And what God does in Genesis chapter 12 is he makes a covenant with Abram. Now a covenant, if you're following along in your notes, a covenant is an invitation to relationship. So what God says to Abram is, I'm going to be at work in your midst. I'm going to do something in your life. I'm going to make a promise to you, and we're going to have a unique, special kind of relationship in that. And so Abram, uh, he has this moment where God appears to him, and God says to him, what I'm going to do is I want you to get up and to move from the land that you're in and go into the land of Canaan. And I want you to be a sojourner there, to dwell in that place that you don't know, haven't been to before, to pitch your tents right there in that place. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring descendants from you. I'm going to create a whole line of people, a whole nation that's going to come from you. And so the only issue with, with that promise is that Abram is 75 years old at the time. Okay? And his wife, Sarai, is 65 years old. This is no small feat that God has just said that he wants to do in Abram's life. I mean, to bring people of this age, to promise them kids and to move them into a new land, that's an impossible kind of promise that God has just made. But it says in Genesis that Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abram gets up and he packs up all his belongings and his people and he walks into the land of Canaan. But when he gets there, he just waits. And he waits, and he waits. After 10 years go by, and he has a conversation with God where he says, look, God, I don't know what you're doing here. I'm trying to understand how you're at work in my life, but Eleazar of Damascus is going to end up being my heir because you haven't given me the son yet that you've promised. What's going on? And God says to Abram in more or less words, Abram, I'm not finished yet. You're going to have to trust me in this. The son is going to come from, from you, from your blood, your flesh and blood. You're going to have a son who's going to be the heir, the child of this promise. And so Abram, this time, he has a little bit of difficulty trusting God, and so he tries to control things. I don't know if you ever tried to do that. But Pastor Brian, you talked about this several weeks ago. What, what uh, Abram does is he says, okay, 
I'm going to take, and this is the advice of his wife, Sarai, too, I'm going to take uh, this slave girl, Hagar, and she's going to become my wife, and I'm going to have a child with her, and they do, and they name him Ishmael. And Abram thinks, okay, problem solved. Like, here we go, child of promise, it's going to be Ishmael. Don't have to worry about this whole covenant thing anymore. But after that happens, God still isn't done, and so Abram waits, and he waits, and he waits. And friends, 25 years have gone by by the time that we get to Genesis chapter 17, the third time that God's going to appear and speak to Abram in the book of Genesis. 25 years. I mean, that's a quarter of a century, right? I go to Chick-fil-A. There's 20 cars ahead of me in line, and I'm out of there in like three minutes or less. Abram's got to be wondering, God, what is taking so long here? What am I waiting for? What's the deal? It's been a quarter of a century. What's going on? And so God is going to appear to him in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. And he's going to speak to Abram. In Genesis 17, 1, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. And then I will make my covenant between me and you. I will greatly increase your numbers. And notice just the first phrase in verse 3. Abram fell face down. Why do you think that Abram takes this posture when he has this encounter with God? See, if you were to look back in Genesis chapter 12 and in Genesis chapter 15, where God meets and speaks to Abraham prior, there's something unique about what he says in Genesis 17. See, in Genesis 17, God speaks to Abram by a name that he has not yet revealed until this point. And he says to him, I am God Almighty. Some of your translations might say sovereign God, and the Hebrew name there is El Shaddai. El Shaddai, I am God Almighty, the sovereign God, and so Abram hits the deck. I mean, he's got his face in the dirt, prostrate before this God. Why? Because when he hears El Shaddai, he knows that El Shaddai means God Almighty or sovereign God. I mean, this is the one who breathes out the stars, like Emma said. This is the God whose power is limitless. This is the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. If you're following along in your notes, it's God Almighty, your sovereign God. That's what El Shaddai means. So Abram, he takes this posture before God. Now, I've never uh, met the Queen of England, all right? I've never been in the presence of royalty. But I think you and I and Abram clearly knows that when you're in the presence of certain authority and power, there's a decorum. There's a way that you posture yourself before that person. And this is exactly what Abram knows intuitively. This is why he's got his knees on the ground and his hands laid out and his face looking in the dirt. Because he recognizes the weight and the magnitude of the moment that El die has just appeared to him. This all-powerful God. Now, when I was in grade school... I had, a, uh, I had a teacher who was coaching me through spelling bee stuff in the school, and so um, she told me, hey, Luke, when you, when you don't know the meaning of a word, you're supposed to ask the judges for the etymology of the word. In fifth grade, I had no idea what that meant, but she later explained it to me, and I'll explain it to you. It means to ask for the history here. Like, where did this word come from? Is it a compound word from different languages and stuff? And you study the word, and that gives you a clue as to what it means. The issue here with El Shaddai is that when scholars and theologians, when they get together and they look at this term, there's some debate about what this means. Some say it comes from really ancient Hebrew. Some say it comes from one of the other Semitic languages, or it means this in its root, or its root means this. 
But one of the things that we all agree on and know is that this is the name that denotes God as the all-powerful, almighty creator God, the God who we call sovereign. This, this name appears 48 times throughout the rest of scripture. And in the times that it appears, it means kind of three things, often all together at once. And I think this is what Abram hears. The first one is that El Shaddai is powerful. I mean, this is the God whose capabilities and capacity for doing great wonders are endless. He cannot be bound, he cannot be stopped. He's the God who can do impossible things, who can orchestrate a story and bring it to fruition. He's the powerful God. It also means that El Shaddai is faithful. You notice that this name appears first in the covenant that God makes with Abram. And by the way, every other time in Genesis when this name appears, it appears in the context of this covenant. That God is the God who's capable of making and keeping his promises. He's the one that we can trust is faithful to deliver on what he said that he's going to do. And the third thing is that El Shaddai is just. You don't have to worry with El Shaddai if he's doing the right thing. You don't have to worry if he's out to get you or if he's opposed or against you. El Shaddai is the one who we can trust as the honorable judge, the good, just, faithful, powerful God. Is it any surprise that Abram is on his face before El Shaddai? Now El Shaddai at this point is going to speak to Abram. I want to read you what he has to say to him. And this is kind of a long text, but stay with me. There's a couple things that God's going to say. One, he's going to say, as for me, this is what I'm going to do. And two, he's going to say, as for you, this is what you're going to do. So this is the covenant, the promise that God reaffirms for Abram. It says, Abram fell face down and God said to him, verse four, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. In verse 9, then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you for the generations to come. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. And God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. That's what God has to say. That's how God reaffirms the covenant that he's made with Abram. He says, look, it's, it's not Ishmael. 
I'm going to give you a son by your wife, Sarah. But one of the cool things that we see in this passage is that God actually gives Abram a bit of a name change here. See, Abram means exalted father. And Abram is not a name that refers to the man himself. Exalted father refers to God. But when God says, I'm not going to call you Abram anymore, I want you to be known among your people and to me as Abraham. Abraham means father of a multitude, and that name refers to Abraham himself. What God's essentially saying here is, look, my promise is so secure, we're going to go ahead and change your name. It's kind of a deposit, down payment. You can take that to the bank. That's how secure the promise is that I've made to you. Now, I feel like every year I see um, a picture of somebody who does something foolish. I want to go ahead and put this on the screen. You can see this, okay? Uh, So this is some guy. I know it's kind of gross. Don't look too long, okay? This is some guy who decided to tattoo his NCAA March Madness prediction on himself, okay? Now, 2014, he's going all out saying, look, Kentucky Wildcats, that's who's going to win the whole thing. And I don't know if this guy lost a bet or if he was just really confident in his team that year. But he went all in on this prediction of what was going to happen in the future, something he couldn't even control at all. And by the way, guess who won 2014 March Madness? Not Kentucky. No, not Kentucky, right? But God, what he's essentially doing here is kind of something like this to Abram. He's saying, look, this promise is so secure, you can go ahead and tattoo that on yourself. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. This is actually real. I mean, God's whole credibility is at stake here. Think about this. If Abram doesn't literally and really and truly become Abraham, the father of a multitude, is God really El Shaddai? Abram's name is intertwined with God's name in this passage. There's a ton that's at stake here for Abraham, and he knows that, and this is why I think he responds the way that he does in verse 17 and 18. In verse 17, Abraham fell face down. We know that. He's taken that posture. But get this, he laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. I mean, he tries to bargain with God a little bit here. Say, God, couldn't it be this way? Like, I know what, I know what you said, and I know what you're trying to do, but I found this easier solution. I mean, essentially, he says to God, look, you can skip the whole miraculous intervention thing. I can do this myself. Like, there's an easier way for me to join your mission and what you're doing in my life. How many of us try to do the same thing sometimes? To say, God, I know what you're calling me to. I know that you're asking me to give my whole self to trust and to believe in the story that you're writing and the mission that you're calling me to join. But, well, I've got this short-circuited way to really do that, and it's going to be great for both of us. And we can just forget about the whole covenant thing. We don't have to talk about that anymore. So maybe, maybe what's the way that you do that? Is it, is it in your time? Is it in your money? I mean, for some of us, I think, wow, God, you're calling me to be a part of this thing. You're asking me to serve and to give my whole self, but I could just write a check, though, and that would be, that would be as, as good, right? Like, I can do that. Maybe for us, God's saying, look, I'm calling you into something, Come into it on my terms in the way that I want you to be a part of it. You're going to miss what I'm doing if you don't surrender your life to the story that I'm writing. You can't just offer up Ishmael and say, let this be the child of the promise. Let God decide what the promise is going to be in your life. 
I think I can tell from these verses that Abraham feels a tension here internally, that there's some internal turmoil here, right? I mean, notice the posture that he takes, right? He's, he's still face down. He's laid out like this before El Shaddai. He knows, he gets in his, in his body, in his bones, who this God is. And so he lays out on the dust. But at the same time, he's prostrate before El Shaddai. He's laughing to himself, right? He's chuckling under his breath. That is so me and so us sometimes, to really want to posture ourselves rightly before God, to really want to believe that he is who he says he is and he can do what he says he's gonna do, but at the same time, inside, we're laughing a bit to ourselves. If you're following along in your notes, Abraham is torn between surrender and disbelief. Oftentimes in our lives, I think we inhabit that space We want to be all in. We want to believe in what God's doing and trust him with our lives and our future. But there's this part of us that's laughing to ourselves before El Shaddai. God's calling us to do this, to join him. But we're struggling to believe that, that it's the right move or that it's good or that he's going to come through for us on the other side. It's a question of can God really be trusted? And consider why this is difficult for Abraham. I mean, he's going to be called father of a multitude by people in his camp, in his tribe, right? And he doesn't even have any kids yet. I mean, think about this. Like, somebody calls to him, hey, father of a multitude, time for lunch, right? I mean, every time he must have heard this name, he doesn't even have kids. He's having to respond and live and believe that by faith. And it's not even true for him yet. But God said, hey, I want you to be known as father of a multitude. I mean, just to wear that that name, just to hear that and respond to it, to be known by it, that's an act of faith. Abraham also has to believe that God is going to give him children through a wife who is 90 years old, who's been barren even when she could have kids. I mean, talk about an impossibility. Is it any wonder Abraham has a hard time believing and trusting in God? And not only that, But God's asked him to confirm, to act on faith in this covenant by circumcising himself and Ishmael and the whole rest of the men who are in his camp. I mean, Abraham really needs, he's he's being asked by God to go all in on this, to trust him with something he can't even understand or know how it's going to happen. Can you get why this is difficult? But guys, if you read the rest of this story in Genesis 17 and 18, God goes up from Abraham, and Abraham is left with a new name for he and his wife Sarah. And on that very day, he gets up after laughing before El Shaddai on the ground, and he follows through. And he circumcises every man in his camp, and he says, this day, we're going to choose to trust God. We're going to choose to believe that he is who he says he is, and he can do what he says he's going to do. We're going to be all in on the promise that God has made and his purposes for us. That same year, Sarah became a mom because God was faithful to his promises. When he asked Abram to trust him, God meant it because he knew that he could deliver and he was doing something Abraham didn't understand at the time. And friends, this morning I wonder where in our lives, what does it look like for us to trust God as El Shaddai? I know for some of us, it's senior year of high school, and college is right around the corner. For some of you, that means you just graduated in the next week. For others of you, you've started to look at schools and prepare for the future. Some of you guys are parents. You can't even believe that your kid's going off to college already or that they just had their first day of you know, middle school. It's coming up. 
and you're, you're asking God, how can I trust you with my future? What's next for me? What are you doing in my life? How do I step into places of uncertainty and believe that you're gonna be there with me and walk me through? I have a, a friend named Lars in South Carolina and he was working at a church. He was a youth pastor there and he just called me up the other day and he said, Luke, I don't know what we're gonna do, but I just, I just had to resign from my job. The, the church that I was working at was just so unhealthy. It was a toxic environment and me and my fiance, for our own emotional, spiritual health, we had to do something different. We had to make a change, but now we're getting married in December and we don't know where we're gonna live. We don't have any income anymore. She's still finishing school. He's still finishing school. He's trying to sell a house and it's like, what is God doing? What is gonna be next for us? How is he gonna meet us here and provide? Maybe that's something that you resonate with. Maybe you're in a place where you're seeking to trust God with your future, with your circumstances, and you're facing things, you don't even know how it's gonna turn out. And God's asking you to believe. I know for some families in our church, you're waiting on a diagnosis, and you're praying, and you're hoping against hope that it's gonna be good news, and that God's gonna come through, and he's gonna show up, and you're desperately trying to know what it means to trust God in pain and uncertainty. I think each and every one of us has to wrestle with God as El Shaddai in our lives and choose to trust him like Abraham did. But one of the things that I think is really important for us to get out of the way that Abraham relates to God as El Shaddai is this, that Abraham, for him, knowing God as El Shaddai meant coming to grips with God's plan on God's terms. It's the same for us. We have to come to grips with God's plan on his terms. We can't make it about our way and our plans and our desires and our ambitions. I mean, it doesn't work for us to relate to God as El Shaddai by saying, God, why don't you align your purposes for me with my purposes for me? Why don't you take the way that you wanna act and move in my life and just surrender that to the way that I want you to act and move in my life? That's not what El Shaddai means, that's not what it's about. El Shaddai is the God that we surrender to, not make demands of. That's what his sovereignty means for us. When I was a kid, my mom used to quote this passage a lot. It's from Isaiah 55. It'll be on the screen. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God speaks and he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your thoughts. This is who God is. This is, he's, he's the one who's above it all and everything. He's sovereignly orchestrating the story of history according to his purposes and designs for us, for the world. Knowing God as El Shaddai doesn't mean trusting that things are gonna go our way. It means when things don't go our way, we trust him. Abraham doesn't invoke the name El Shaddai to summon God's power. He invokes the name El Shaddai when he's powerless. This is the posture that we take before the God who is sovereign and almighty. And I know that for some of us, when we hear El Shaddai, sovereign God, that's not a source of comfort. That might not be a place of encouragement for you. For some of us, when we hear the sovereignty of God, all kinds of questions get stirred up. We start to wonder things and think, God, how can this be? And why is there injustice and suffering and evil? And we ask some of the biggest, toughest questions in life and we approach God as sovereign. 
And I want you to know if that's where you're at today and you're wrestling with the sovereignty of God in that way, you are not alone. I mean, not even are you not alone in this room with the people and experiences here. You're not even alone in scripture. I mean, of the, of the 48 times that almighty God appears as a name in scripture, 31 of them come in the book of Job. I mean, Job is the book of wrestling with God. If there is one in scripture, it's that. I mean, Job is the sufferer of all sufferers. He's the one who most of all has to wrestle with God as El Shaddai, and yet he's the one more than anybody else in scripture who calls God sovereign God, almighty God, El Shaddai. Guys, I think that sometimes for us, maybe for you, maybe like Job, El Shaddai is the name that we have to fight to believe He's a name that we cling to and we wrestle with. He's a name that we have to come to God with and say, God, I don't even know how to believe this or what this means. I'm trying desperately to trust you. And if you're in that place and your faith is hanging on by a thread this morning, I want you to know that when I wrestle with that, I don't look to God else to die as somebody who sits up in the heavens and moves the puppet strings, no. The sovereign God, he became a sufferer. The almighty, he became weak. The faithful one was betrayed. The just was condemned. God isn't just the one who sits up in the heavens and we don't know how to relate to this God, no. Friends, and I think, what is the most unlikely place that I should expect to encounter El Shaddai? It's the one place that I find him the most, and it's on that cross right there. That's where El Shaddai is revealed to us most, is the God that we can trust. In Jesus Christ, God has shown us the way that his sovereignty takes the posture of being hung on a cross for us. And when I don't know how to explain things, when I face uncertainty in friends, when we don't know what God's doing or if we can really trust him, we look to El Shaddai as he speaks and is made known to us from the cross. And on that basis, we run to, lean into, and call out to God as El Shaddai. And friends, the same God who died for us was raised to life, and the Spirit of God who brought breath back into Jesus' body is speaking to us and moving in our stories and lives today. And because of that, we have inherited far greater promises than Abraham even had. I want to leave you with a few promises of Scripture that God has said will come for us. Maybe you're in a place where you need healing. In Romans 8, God has promised us the redemption of our bodies. Maybe you've said to yourself, God can't really use me. I'm too far gone. In Ephesians 4, God has said, we will all be brought up in unity into maturity and the fullness of Christ. Maybe you've said to yourself, life is unfair. There's too much suffering and injustice, and I can't make sense of it all. When's it going to end? How long, O oh Lord? In Revelation 21, God has said there will be a day when there is an end to all suffering and injustice, and even that great enemy, death, will be put to death. For some of us, we've said, I'm so overwhelmed. I can't face what's ahead of me and what's on my plate. You wrestle with fear and anxiety, 
Can I tell you that in Hebrews 4, God has said there remains an eternal Sabbath rest for the people of God. And we're about to sing and respond, but before we do that, we want to give you space. Maybe for you, you need to take the next few minutes to wrestle. Maybe you need to lament. Maybe you need to cry out to God. Maybe you just need to worship and thank him for the way that he has sovereignly brought you to where you are today. Whatever that looks like for you in the next few moments, as you posture yourself rightly before God as El Shaddai, I want to leave you with a question to consider. The question is, where in my life is God asking me to trust him? Would you pray and meditate on that question as we take some space to be still before the Lord, before you respond and worship? Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.